0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Jean Cheleby about his new book, The Format Age. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Jean Cheleby, who is a professor of international communication in the Department of Sociology at City University of London. And we're going to be talking about his new book, The Format Age, Television's Entertainment Revolution, which is published by Polity Press. So welcome to the podcast. Right,
1: well, Dave, thank you very much for having me
0: um this this is a fascinating book uh i think i said to you earlier it's made me think again about how i watch television where the kind of things i'm watching on television have come from and also introduces um or perhaps reintroduces um a different theoretical framework for understanding tv so we're going to talk about all of that but before we do it'd be really interesting to hear a bit about your kind of general interests and where this book came from and how it connects to the work you've been you've been doing in uh, communication studies?
1: Yeah, my previous book was on, on international channels in, in, in Europe and worldwide. So in entertainment primarily, I did touch on news, I've done of work on channels like Discovery, Disney, MTV. I thought that would be a combination of this work towards more understanding in depth of the structure of global flows in, in, in the country world.
0: I guess the, the kind of the really obvious thing to ask about the book is what is a TV format?
1: <laughs> like what, yeah. what are we actually talking about? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a very good question. There's many things in the TV format. The, the first thing in the TV format is the right to do a remake of a show in another territory. So it's at first level is what it is. It's an, it becomes what you do with a format. It becomes an adapted version in you another know, territory of an existing show. So that's what it is. But it also, many things, it's it's also a, a proof of concept. Because practically, broadcasters acquire a license for a format because a format has been successful elsewhere. So if you acquire I don't know, a talent competition like Strictly Dancing, it will come with huge um, Bible ratings and tells you how it has performed in which territories, with which audience, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's a proof of concept and why it's very successful in the industry, because broadcasters use this to de-risk, as they call it, so it's like de-risk a schedule. So then it comes to the proof of concept. But it's also a, a, a recipe. And that's a very common definition whereby you have a kind of cake recipe and you can mix it with local ingredients. So the recipe is kind of Global, that's what you have to do. You have to follow, show these rules uh, and follow these rules. And then you can add the local ingredients. So you've got local elements and a global aspect. This is why people call it a hybrid or transnational. My favorite definition of a format is kind of is engineered drama. It's guaranteed drama. So you, you invent, it's like a sport. It's like football. You, you have in, in a football game, everything is set the the rules the team the number of players the duration the the size of the pitch everything the rights are sold three years in advance and of course the fans come is guaranteed you set you set the drama and and uh, you got the rules maybe the offside rule to make it more exciting so everything is engineered drama and a format is exactly the same Uh, you, you make up rules to engineer Drama, so it's kind of managed unpredictability. You make something exciting and predictable within, but you, it's it's managed. So, give an example of uh, maybe uh, you know wife swap, for instance. If you if you invite uh, you know a spouse with no no kids and a spouse with five kids, just before the ad break, you guarantee tease or drama. You guarantee this. So basically, it's having drama but making sure the cameras are here, and that's probably the best definition of a format is like a sports. really and you, you engineer drama it's- make sure, quite often with real people, if it, you have no script, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, rumors about how scripted are reality TV shows, and some are a bit scripted, mostly the relationship shows, like maybe the the dating shows, but realities tend then not to be scripted, so they don't have the time, and you just invite exciting people, you have a nice precinct where you sure, you take people out of the comfort zone, maybe a dinner party, or a hospital, or something like this, and uh, school, and then you've got drama naturally. But you just have to make sure that you, the cameras are rolling.
0: There's no doubt as well, above and beyond those three definitions, that, that they're big business. You know, there's, there's a lot of money to be made. And I think that is one of the, the reasons that you've got a very particular theoretical framework in the book. I guess one way of thinking about understanding television would be through a kind of cultural or media studies lens, you know, thinking about the content or... Uh, maybe reception by the audience but you do something quite different you're interested in i guess the kind of political economy of format trading and i mean just kind of you know picking out a couple of things um, global value chains world systems theory the nl school you know there's a kind of a whole range of different theoretical starting points and i think to pick up on one of those would be really interesting why is it that you think the kind of the global value chain is that's the kind of you know the key way to explain Mm -hmm. both you know the kind of the rise of the format but also why the format is such a big business?
1: That's a good question. I'm going to start with the, the, the theory bit a little bit. I've always been interested in, I'm going to say something personal, I always loved the Annan School mm-hmm. for two reasons. Here I think that it's a French school that started in 1920s, 1930s. a historian, I always like history, is always important to look at. It always tells you something of the present and in fact the future. And what I like about about this this tradition is they're very humble, you know. It's this mm-hmm. for me that's very disposition of humility. Let's look at the data, let's do a real research project, and that's what I try to do here, looking at data, what what the data tells us, and look into the details. So there's a lot of interviews. You know, I've got seventy, eighty interviews here, and really listen to what the story. People tell you, don't go there with, you know, with a political view, or with, with a kind of, you know, an a priori, that can be a little bit. Uh, so for me, it's a way of telling a nice story. It's not my story, what I believe, you know, but it's, it's driven by data. And also, you look into details and small things, and if you add all these details together... You can tell a beautiful story. One of the, I mean, the, 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 the Annale books from Brodel or Fair Martin, are absolutely beautiful. The invention of the book is probably one of the best books ever written in communication. Is how the, the printing was invented and the impact of printing on civilization. But they made it very clear, even Martin and Feb, that really the book was a commodity. Printers were having printing workshops in, in Paris and then Oxford and Cambridge, London to make money. So there's this combination of social change on a massive scale, but small workshops of two, three men trying to make ends meet by printing pamphlets or whatever they could put their hands on. I love this, you know, a this, this story it's not the kings and queens of the world, it's it's the story made in Holborn, in you know, the small in, in Fleet Street, you know. I love this. So that's what I love this. And um, an school who the, one of the uh, disciples of Brodel was uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein. He had come a concept in the mid-1980s of commodity chain, global commodity chain. He wanted to s- demonstrate that capitalism started in the 16th century. And to do this, he did. He constructed two chains. One was the wheat chain, and the other one was the uh, naval boats, both the uh, Dutch boats, trading boats. And he says, oh, I board material come from all over the world and so on and so forth and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I thought that was fascinating. And Immanuel Warenstein, his idea of a uh, global commodity chain, was picked up by a guy, a few people, but mostly Gary Gereffy, who is now at Duke University, who has been working on this for decades now, and they came up with the concept of global value chain. And global value chain, I thought, is absolutely ideal, yet adapted to uh, to this uh, format business. I think maybe one of the first studies in media studies that use this theoretical framework. And the global value chain, basically you look at different value-adding sequences in the production of a commodity, which can be a laptop, a car, uh, a book, or a TV show. And you look at the different uh, value-adding uh, sequences. And in the in case of TV format, it's very clear that what happened, mostly in the US, but very clearly in the UK, is the emergence of the TV production sector. as companies that, like RDF at the time, Action Time, uh, what was some uh, remarkable, uh, Bazel, uh, all these companies were t- specialized in creating TV shows. And so we're sending this primarily to, to Channel 4 and progressively a bit more to the other uh, public broadcasters, BBC and ITV. And then this IP, this intellectual property, this shows in the UK and started thinking, well, what can we do with this? We might be able to adapt it to, to, to other markets. that's how it started. So really the TV format, the history of TV format is a, the history of a production segment within uh, the TV industry. And it is particularly prominent in this country. Uh, which is the, uh, the the production companies? It, it, it's interesting because
0: the first two chapters chart, I guess, you know, part of that change where formats were essentially kind of game shows, and predominantly the kind of American game shows imported uh, across the Atlantic. And then this wouldn't really be a kind of a global content market at, at this point. But by the 1990s, you, you talk about how that's formed. So I wonder if you could say a bit about. Formation of a of a global market for content in in the nineteen nineties.
1: Yeah. now that's a very interesting question. I mean, yeah, it was a very r- restrictive market. Most, I mean, you have to say up to the nineteen eighties in in Europe, you had only few broadcasters. Many were public. Sometimes you didn't have daytime television. Uh, breakfast television was not invented. There was very little competition. They, uh, the uh, public service broadcasters were integrated as well. Uh, so you had little incentives to import TV formats, which mostly game shows, were not very well perceived by the local authorities and stuff like this. The audience liked them, but you know. And so it was and the, the first format was basically the one-way flow of communication from the from the states to the UK and, and Western Europe mostly. I think Eastern Europe had its own little uh, network. And you know the classics were Wheel of Fortune, Price is Right, Blockbusters, uh dating games was blind game, but it always became very important. But it was a it was more it was really uh restricted to game shows. You have a few scripted formats coming from the UK to the US. That's a slightly different story. Maybe we can touch on this later on. But basically mostly game shows. I mean it all changed in the nineteen nineties. Uh, it's very complex. I think that with the first one I can see is an emergence of TV producers, companies that specialize in selling IP and therefore interested in, in sweating every drop of this IP in every possible right on every possible platform. And That was very prominent in the, in the, U, in the UK as well in Holland uh, to a lesser extent in other European markets as they started exporting this to uh, markets which were becoming a year ahead also an explosion of broadcasters in emerging markets, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, maybe later on in the Middle East, where you had local local broadcasters. They started importing cheap contents, but as far as I can take you, audience prefer local content, but you know how to. And it's where the format trade stepped in, saying, well, you know, you want local content, here's a recipe. Uh, you give us seven, eight persons, you pay us a license fee of seven to eight percent, and we tell you exactly how to do it and how to do a little daytime or a game show or something like this. That is very good. So that's what happened. In, in a more developed market, it became more competitive in the States. The States started to open up with the British format, which is like selling code to Newcastle. Uh So they started on... Um, Wants to be a millionaire was one of the first. Peter Bazaket before sold Ready Steady Cook, that became huge on the food network. So this, it was quite competitive, and, and American broadcasters as they are now started to be interested in importing IP that had, had proof of concept as why well. this show is working, because it's structured to work, and that's become important. But this principle was also important in Western Europe, where increasingly uh, broadcasters, you when know, you had opening up, deregulation, liberalisation, more trade, and broadcasters increasingly wanted to build and I think the sort of fourth interesting aspect of what happened in the 90s was very important in the formation of global market, uh, global content market, is the emergence of new genres, and primary primarily reality television, which is formatable. So you have, you know, you create a format, reality format, and you know, whether it's people on the beach or in the huts, or in the house, and you will have format points, so you have, group, you have a structure, and you can repeat the structure across territories. I think the emergence of two, I think oh, there was reality television, maybe with Big Brother, and the other one was maybe Factual Entertainment, started with seeing people like, with, very British, uh, they started doing uh, you know uh, shows in airports or train stations, and, and Stephen said, why don't we set the situation ourselves? and that became faking it was among the first. So you set the situation: you're going to fake, you pretend to be a sports coach, you're going to pretend to be a, you know, a, a, a violinist or what have you. And therefore, as that you set the situation, I had a wife swap, super nanny. That became very, very important. And which is in the '90s, I was still selling a lot of game shows, but reality was, I think, the first or second genre traded in the business. So I think all these things, opening up markets, opening up new markets, local broadcasters looking for content, more competition in uh, established markets like the UK, the US, uh, new genres coming, and as well, uh, the the emergence of the independent TV production sector as well. And within days, you had the, the emergence in the late 90s of production giants, the first two, one was Pearson TV, which was headed by Greg Dyke. In fact, Greg Dyke bought Fremantle in the states and, and sports uh, uh, game show producers, and formed that what would become Fremantle Media. And the other one was Endeavor, uh, which was a merger, nineteen ninety four merger between uh, uh, John DeMol and uh, Van den Ende, and that became Endeavor. And, uh, they were they had offices in several territories and starting producing formats.
0: I mean, you draw a distinction in in the book around um, a couple of programs that you call kind of super formats. But before we talk about that, I'd just like to pick up on on where you finished there about kind of, you know, going into other territories, having offices in other places. One of the things you say in the book in Chapter 4 is actually that these flows aren't kind of brand new. They haven't kind of come out of nothing. They actually replicate a lot of existing trade channels. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about the kind of the continuities um, of the flow of TV formats.
1: Yeah, if you, it's interesting. I mean, there is kind of a myth, you know, in, in some, you know, circles, that, you know, culture is, is cosmopolitan. I mean, it is, you know, it's, but it's, you know, anything can come from every, everywhere and we, everything is transnational, food is transnational, and, you know, the, everything flew in every direction. And the reality is not as exciting, you know, it's much more mundane. And In fact, if you look at WT, the World Trade Organization statistics, World trade is is dominated by very few nations, the usual suspects, and China. There's a huge inequalities, world inequalities in world trade. I mean, I mean, I mean, I would say 80 percent. I don't have the data now, so don't. I mean, but 80 percent of world trade is four, or five nations: the U.S., China, Germany, U.K. Maybe France, maybe a bit low. And and format. The format world is the same. Most formats around the world. Are uh, coming from, from the UK, from the US, still uh, from Holland, Israel is emerging, Spain. So it's very, very unequal. So, of course, for me, I think that the, 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 the trade structure of the format world reproduces the power structure of world trade, which is very, very unequal. And for me, it's the definite, that was one of the things I've learned from how I was actually. From, from looking at formats, absolutely. I thought it was a bit more widespread and uh, equally spread, but it was not the case. And there's reasons for this dominance. We maybe can talk about it later, but it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a feature of the format trade.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because the chapter about super format, you know, the kind of examples of who wants to be a millionaire, American or pop or whatever, idols, big brother, survivor, they're you know they clearly haven't come you know from kind of cosmopolitan out of yeah, you know yeah. kind of trans trans global flows they do follow quite a, you know an obvious pattern of broadly speaking kind of western assumptions about television mm-hmm. formats you know assumptions about um, audience relationships and stuff like this mm-hmm. so um, it'd be interesting to hear about why you pick those as super formats and maybe you know what why they're good examples yeah
1: I thought, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's was a judgment. I think the methodology was a bit subjective here. But the, the, the formats I call super formats are Big Brother, uh, Wants to be a Millionaire, Survivor, and Idols. And all formats were era-defining, epoch-defining, very influential, and very successful. I give you an example with, with with Big Brother. Of course, the concept at the time was shocking for some people, and but it's also the use. What was revolutionary about Big Brother was the, not the use of cameras, but the use of not surveillance. I know a lot has been written about it, but from a more TV trade perspective, is a use of different platforms, and it would nearly crush the internet. I think in the UK, it was half the I think half the internet's traffic at the time was Big Brother. And I was so they were on multi-platform formats. Uh, they were on terrestrial cable and, and internet. You could also involve in the mobile phone, you could go to call. Also being a millionaire, the same story. A lot of features of millionaire have survived millionaire, notably the uh, you know, all the the A B C D, the, the answers, which it was the first time the answers were on screen, so broadcasters are very scared, but of course everybody's gonna win a million, the answer is there. And and Portions had to convince David Lidemans that when well, things are a bit more complicated, why don't we play New Office? So that was now it's it's current it's a it's a currency of game show but at the time that was revolutionary. But uh World was very commercial uh, in, in scope and they made a fair bit of money with this. And it was the first concept of format as franchise. And you had a, at one stage you had one hundred and forty product lines branded wants to be a millionaire. And if you buy, if your adapt wants to be a millionaire, you have to take the music, you have to duplicate entirely the, the sets and you, you have to take the logo and everything. You have little freedom or no freedom at all. You just have to do your own question, but everything even the, the dress the, the the dark tie and dry everything is defined so it's a very clearly defined brand it was one of the first TV shows that was defined approached as a brand and Paul Smith was a you know businessman where he retained the ancillary rights so it's you know it's a set that quite common now, but at the time it was revolutionary the, the, the next one was was Survivor. and I don't big brother what they did very well it's well it's almost i would say invent reality tv because reality tv was invented before but adapted and formatted if you know like, i mean took many years to 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 adapt and it was the first format with Big brother to have an elimination process and this elimination process is probably one of the key inventions in the recent history of television whereby you have 15 contestants and every week you engineer drama you guarantee drama because one of them has to leave so you can do it as you want you organize the votes you know some semi-public no public all public uh nominations you can do what you want but just like the fact one person has to leave engineer drama you can have strategies building around this and makes for exciting viewing so that survival was also very uh, you know, was key in 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 developing this. And idol, of course, it was. You had pop star, so I don't. I'm a little bit unfair with pop star, was big, and there, there was a little bit of an issue between the, the distributor of pop star, which I believe was Target Entertainment, and they were a little bit bullied by free mental media. I have to say, uh, but you know, they, they agreed. Out of court, pop was was kind of the kernel of idols. It was a little bit long. It had huge success in Australia, I believe, in few, in later in a few other territories. But Idols was really the juggernauts that redefined the, the, uh, the first decade of, of television uh, with hugely successful adaptations uh, in, uh, in America. American Idol was the most important, was the leading TV show, the you know, most successful the unscripted TV show ever on American television. I can't remember the date. I was quite impressed. The figures quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Of course, from Idols, you have a lot of singing competitions with, from you know, X Factor and a few others as well. So that was a template. So Idols was very successful, distributed and produced sometimes by Fremantle Media. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was also... So all four formats have been extremely innovative, sometimes difficult to sell, sometimes shocking, but always their own way uh, were very, very, very innovative and said so, you know, a lot of people have taken things to this day, if you do, you can see the influence. If you watch a new game show today, you can see the influence of who wants to be a millionaire. If you watch a talent competition, you always find the influence of idols as well in So it's, uh yeah, so that's why I think it's super formats and people a lot of people say in trade in, in trade and market fairs why what, what are the new ones and why are the big formats But yeah I think you need you need the technology. You know what's very important for the talent competitions is uh, digital editing suites where you don't you record things, you can store them on a computer, and if you see, if you find, if you need to find the first audition of contestant number eighty-six thousand three hundred forty-five, you can find this person. So it's it's it requires huge computing storage power. Uh, I think this reality television relies a lot on this technology in Big Brother is the same, the storage you're gonna have is huge, and if you want to pick up the thread, the discussion, the dispute, and the, 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 the love interest, then you need to find this in your file, so it you requires. I think the next new super format will apply a new technology. So, of course, a lot of people think of social media but I think it hasn't happened yet. How do you integrate social media within the story? That's a difficult a difficult uh, thing to do, so I think it hasn't. But these four formats were era-defining. I think we're touching the end of this era. American Idol was canceled. I think in this country, the are getting a bit tired. Got Talent's getting a bit tired. I mean, boys they had super 10, 15 years. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's quite, quite big in still markets, but we're touching the end of this time. But it has been. No one can deny. Uh, I think collectively, uh, gut talent is more than sixty territories. Idol is more than fifty territories, and other talent competitions as well. So they still very important.
0: And I mean, you talk as well about the impact on how national television industries themselves get transformed. You talk about you know the kind of three stages of of upgrading a yeah. um, national television industry, and and it's really interesting because it's not just the question of what we see on screen having been transformed by these uh, super formats and being transformed by this, this global trade, but actually the kind of uh, the systems of production get changed yeah. as well. So it'd be interesting to hear what the kind of, yeah, the kind of the stages of upgrade are and, yeah. and how Great Britain was really crucial in, yeah. in this.
1: Yeah, I think Britain was a world leader. I'm, I'm not British, so I can say it, but it's an <laughs> absolute world leader. Uh, Two respects. If you speak to producers in China, in the Middle East, British producers really reorganized how TV shows are produced. You know, I mean, they had a head of way of doing it. And with the TV format through it, has completely changed. People came with got, got Talent there, with MasterChef, and this is how you do a TV show. It has completely transformed local practices. And the locals are quite happy with it. So it sounds a bit brutal, it sounds a bit imperialistic, but I mean, the local industry, it is more efficient. So anyway, that's from there. In terms, of you need to... Why trade is, is dominated by few nations? Because you need local conditions to be able to export and trade, to perform well in trade. And it's the case in television as in any other industries. And in the case of television, what Britain has is A, they protects all segments in the value chain. If you look at most, in most territories, broadcasters are very powerful I can crush the interest of those small guys, which are the local TV production companies. I was speaking to someone from the Middle East there, and the problem, why you don't have Middle Eastern formats, because i interviewed producers in the Middle East, they have an idea, they say, if a local broadcaster see, once, if he presents to a local produ- local broadcaster one of the ideas, they steal it. That's it. So they can't steal a MasterChef, but they can still have little format. And that's the problem. It's not trade. It's not American imperialism. It's the fact that there's no respect locally for local intellectual property. It's not the case in the UK. I really have to say that the government, successive governments have legislated quite cleverly, uh, the, the TV industry since not, the 1980s with the formation of Channel 4 against intense lobbying from ITV. Because you could buy in the in, in, in late seventies, you could buy TV sets, and it with ITV two on the dial. So in the news, and you know, they wanted something more flexible, a commissioning broadcaster, so that launched and they had broadcasting quotas, and they had the very famous terms of trade, which you know about, in two thousand and three, which says that broadcasters cannot acquire all the rights of a TV show; they can only get the one they need. And that was very important because the IP of these producers became assets they could sell abroad. So that's very important. So you need, when you legislate, you need to legislate for the entire uh, value chain, not only for the big guys. Now, if you only, in, in, in food, in the food chain, if you only listen to the supermarkets, you wouldn't have a farmer standing in this country in, not in five years, in five days. That would be it. So there's, there's no agriculture. You need to, Mm-hmm. You need to legislate, for anti- and in this country, they do it very well. I think you can even see this with the BBC white paper. I mean, not everybody is happy with it. Some people are okay with it, I think. I, I, don't, I think the BBC is not complaining too much. I know it from good sources, uh, but the independent sector is very happy because it's opened up most of the BBC output to the independent sector. So. From a BBC perspective, I think BBC played, you know, I defended the BBC, I submitted a paper to BBC, it's very important to have a strong public service broadcaster, which is one of the best broadcasters in the world, but from the independent, it's quite interesting, it's quite, I think, that it will bring new opportunities for the independent sector, so that's quite interesting. Uh, so that's one thing is important is protect the little guys and protect the local inter- intellectual property. Don't let the big guys, don't let the supermarkets or television crush the farmers. That's number one. Number two is also the diversity of the, the British ecosystem. And it's a wonderful uh, it's wonderfully set up with different income streams. So you've got public service broadcasters who make money out of advertising, you've got pay television. Uh, you've got public service broadcasting, you've got com- cl- classic commercial broadcasters, and all these business models are fantastic and they should be cherished and supported. And uh, so that made a huge contribution to, to the format. You also need broadcasters who are almost paid to take risks. That's the case of Channel 4, who commission a lot of new shows, more new shows than anybody else. Of course. Uh, I think the privatisation of Channel 4 would be a big mistake. It looks like the government has kind of understood this. Uh, and the BBC, I would support the BBC, the licence fee, a strong BBC, is good for, for independent production sector and good for the viewers as well. And we need, you know, a, a strong commissioning institution that, you know, is, is there. So all this, this diversity of, of, of uh, the British system is good, it's competitive, but diverse if it's only competitive it becomes the states and you get a certain kind of television if it's too you know too public then it gets a bit stale as well so i think the uk is just in the middle and does very well out of this and number three i think now it might be a bit controversial but you need to be involved in trade you know you learn a lot if i've done interviews in the middle east now in africa and they love adapting Western formats because they learn a lot of skills. But the problem is then is the local broadcasters who do not respect local ideas. But you can't accuse the West, you can't accuse Britain of the States. You know, you, you need to speak to local broadcasters who are often very powerful politically. And local politicians will do nothing against local. But we need to have the courage to say, well, you know what? I'm going to legislate for the entire value chain, not only you for the big guys. Because that's the problem in Europe. And that's a problem in many, many, many countries. So it's 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 important, that yeah, to have a diverse legislation that take account of all the interests, a diverse ecology, and to be involved in trade. As well. you learn a lot from trade.
0: It, it's really interesting actually because that that's where the book concludes. Actually, is this question of the kind of the local and the global. Um, but before we get to that, um, the, the sort of the back end of the book is a, a discussion about how uh, I think use the phrase. How the format revolution has kind of come come full circle, uh, and I was really interested to know a bit more about that and, and and why that is actually why is it you know the this kind of idea of being at the end of an era or how have we come full circle?
1: Yeah, what I mean by this is that it's completed with the advent of scripted format, which came a bit later than unscripted uh, television. So we had game shows, then reality. All this I mean, for me, the key genres of reality for the format world are uh, observational documentaries like Benefit Street, which not fantastic February but you know, it's there. And I think five, six years ago, Benefit Street would not have been formatted because people said, "Where's the format here?" But now it is. Uh, the Real Housewives as well. It started with Orange County, just as well. It's light touch you don't know, have clearly format points, it's character driven, then you got factual entertainment such as Swap, with a clear structure and a, pre- a precinct as well then you got reality competition like Survivor or Big Brother and then you got talent competition so that, that was a big four, and after this game, I think you know, scripts have always been adapted, even in the era of sound broadcasting in the 30s but it's only later in the 90s, maybe mid 90s, no- are it became a big business in the format world, and where TV series started to be uh, adapted so uh, fully. And why I say it's full, full circle? we started with game shows at the bottom of the scale, and I interviewed game show producers and game sh- people who were selling game shows, and saying they told me one of them told me it's like selling toilet brush really were introduced at the back door of the TV building, there is a class dimension. So into the back door of the TV building, people were almost ashamed of dealing with this game for producers. And it's very difficult at an anthropological level to to interview them. When you interview people in drama, you know, it's all, you know, it's the interview never ends. But when you interview game show producers, you really have to it's almost a police interview. You know, I can't remember, I don't know. It's you know, they don't have this pride. It's a shame. So we started with game shows and then we went upscaling up to drama. And now I mean homeland is, is, is an Israeli drama and a lot of you know important drama are, are formatted today. So that's why what is full circle and an entire gamut of all the TV genres from the the most mundane daytime uh, auction stuff to Saturday prime time is is, is formatted as why just why I met by full circle so now yeah. No, it's just uh, yeah the format trade is within it's really part of television. Ten fifteen before we wants to be a millionaire you had T V executives never heard of a format. Yeah. It's really game show stuff, you know, it's really a lot of snobbery about game shows and not get near the genre, you know. Uh, now it's, it's everything can be formatted, including uh a lot of British formats are tested the scripted formats are a bit more difficult to to adapt of course it's culturally more intense. you need a good writing team rewriting team you need people who understand what they're doing, what the code the format and how they can translate it it's much more difficult to do it, and the success rate is less than in this game show variety, but nonetheless uh they exist
0: it's really interesting is that again, returns us to how the book concludes, which is about perhaps the balance, perhaps the tension between the local and and the global. And you, you sort of make a case for the, you know, the um, the continued vitality of local culture. Um, and, and you mentioned this a couple of times in the face of, of a narrative that, you know, pop idol or American idol or big brother is just a kind of a, you know, McDonaldization of, uh, of television so yeah I mean what what does what does the format trade tell us about the continued robustness of the local and the kind of um, the continued importance of the local
1: yeah I think different is a good question D- different carols will tell you different stories mine is very positive I, c- I can't I can't see what the threat is because I see your format as as an ingredient. I think the analogy might be a bit dark but I compare this to another <laughs> but you you know you, you got... Universal ingredients like rice, potatoes. There were local com- coffee was a local commodity. Now you got coffee everywhere, rice the same, but bananas, apples, oranges. You know, those were local products We became global commodities. But then comes cuisine, local cuisine. You've got 100 ways of cooking potatoes or rice or, or you know, fruits. I think formats for me is a little bit the same. Then once you have your format, you can do what you want. If you come down with me, you're gonna. It's gonna be a local, like a platform for local stories, you know. So you, you can. It's yeah. It depends what you want out of, of of you know local cultures. I mean, you can bemoan the fact that everybody is playing football to the same rules because there are different football rules. There's some people who play without boundaries. So I heard some tribes play football just in the forest. That's, that's fantastic. So it is maybe a loss of diversity. FIFA is a loss of diversity to stand... Nonetheless, you can see that when people in Chile or Argentina or Thailand, when they watch football, they support the local team. So it's kind of, yeah, maybe a sweet bit, you know, it's, it's one football, one route for everybody, which might be bad. It's a loss of diversity. But on the other hand, you can't, the locals do support the team. And with format, is the same, you know, you watch local contestants. I think he did well. I mean, some, some languages may be a bit on the, on the threat. and if you have reality television, it makes its local cultures more vibrant. You know, if a big browser in Hungary, in the small markets, where well, maybe the young people identify more with the local culture. I really think it's a platform for, for local languages and local culture, and uh, I think it's a positive story. And then, if you're lucky, the locals can create their own formats, or even very close to this. I think it's I think is the format have helped local cultures be more relevant to to a young audiences. It's you know sometimes a local culture can be a bit stale or a bit literary or a bit too wordy, and it's I think overall for me the format trade it's it, it's positive you know because you do what you want with the format, so that's why I think the the, the, the conclusion of the book is quite positive.
0: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host up Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Jean Chalabi about his new book, The Format Age.